listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is from James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Let the brother or sister of humble means boast in having a high position, and the rich in having been humbled, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when desire has conceived, it engenders sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of of his own purpose, he gave birth to us by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Dick, for that reading. Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Dan. It is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. We started a new teaching series last week on the book of James, uh, and I'm kind of curious. Every week in our bulletins, we give you this uh, going deeper section uh, with ideas and prompts, ways to kind of take these teachings a little bit deeper throughout the week. And uh, the suggestion last week was to read the first chapter of James, and I'm just curious, did anyone try it? Anybody spend some time in James this week? Okay, a few of us, that's awesome. Um, For those of you who did, for those who raised your hands, or maybe if you've spent some time in James in the past, maybe you're familiar with this book, what did you think? What were some reactions? What struck you from from the letter of James? Anything. What was that? Ouch. Ouch? (laughs) Say more, Dick. Ouch how? Dick's got a guilt complex. That makes, okay, and, and so probably there's, there's some stuff in James that kind of stings. Well, read it, right? He's not mincing words. Ouch, I like that. Other responses, reactions? Very down to earth, Very down to earth. yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to say more about that? No, okay. But, but uh, super practical, right? Like it's, it's, not, it's not pie in the sky, ideas, arguments, thesis being proven. He's, he's talking about real world stuff. Yes, thank you, Jan. Any other any other thoughts on, on James from James himself here? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, accessible, not complicated. You read it and you can kind of understand what he's talking about, right? Perfect. Thank you. Anybody else wanna wanna say a few words about James? That's cool. When I read this book. Uh, especially James chapter 1, as I'm going through this, personally, I feel like I'm back in the book of Proverbs. 
Do you guys remember Proverbs? Uh, Last fall, we spent some time going through Proverbs together. It's this book that is just full of these pithy little sayings, little bits of wisdom and practical advice for how to live a good life in relation to God and others. And the book of James was written by a follower of Jesus who was clearly very steeped in the book of Proverbs. So, for example, we get these pithy little lines from James, uh, stuff like this. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. That, that was from last week, right? James 1, 5. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test of time and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not produce God's righteousness. I could see that in like a fortune cookie or something, right? <laughs> like Christian fortune cookies. And then there's this one. The rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. I thought I'd end on an uplifting one, right? <laughs> I could see that on a motivational poster, right? Like, at like Bernie Sanders' house or something. It's just, it's perfect. Um, <clears throat> any one of these would fit very well in the book of Proverbs, uh, but that kind of makes James a pricky, uh, a tricky book. I don't know where I went there. A, <laughs> a pricky book? A tricky book to preach on, sorry. Or a pricky book to teach on, I don't know. It makes it tricky, it makes it tricky. Because James bounces from topic to topic without a, a clear connection in between. Uh, in, in just the passage Dick just shared with us, James talks about economic inequality, honoring the poor, sin, temptation, generosity, uh, the love of God, wealth. That's a lot for nine verses. And so to make this a little bit more digestible, I think we can group the wisdom of this section under three categories. We've got the inequality of the world, the reality of sin, and the perfection of God. Economic inequality, sin, and perfection. All super easy things to talk about, you know? Nothing, nothing provocative here. We're going to go through each of these, but I actually want to flip the order around. Vincent, up there on the slides, if you go to the next one. Let's flip the order. Let's put the economic stuff at the end, because that's a little tricky. And let's start with the topic of perfection. Does that sound good? Excellent. The perfection of God. When I hear the word perfect uh, or perfection, my mind immediately goes to my wife, Erin. <laughs> Aw, that's right, yes. Don't get too excited, though. You don't know where this is going. You don't know where this is going. Um, <clears throat> I cleared this with her, so it's okay. For the last four years, give or take, uh, my wife Erin has been remodeling our house, going room by room. And I say that Erin has been, has been remodeling the house because I am not allowed to touch anything. Um, <laughs> we tried to work together on the first room, the dining room, and discovered really quickly that my work is not up to her standards. Um, so I get, I get to help out, you know, if, if she needs an extra set of hands with something. I've gotten to do some painting, although after this past weekend, uh, maybe not. But that's, that's pretty much it. And um, two weekends ago, right, Labor Day weekend, we started priming the walls in the living room, and I got to help. Aaron let me use the big roller, okay? So, very exciting. 
But as I'm using the roller to put primer on the walls, right, so I'm, I'm doing my thing, Aaron follows behind me with a brush and a small roller to catch all of my mistakes. So, so like every minute or two, she's like, oh, Dan, there's a drip here. There's, you left a drip. I'll, I'll, it's a drip. Oh, there's a, there's a ridge. You left a lip where the, where the roller passes over. You got to go back over that. Oh, there's a, there's a speck here. Check the roller. There might be some dried paint on it. Oh, another drip. We did the entire room like this, you guys. All four walls and the ceiling. Uh, we get done, and Aaron is like, I guess you did okay. Um, do you want to help me prime the trim? And I was like, Aaron, my love. I think for the sake of your sanity and our marriage, you should go solo on the trip. So I, that's, that's, that's it. That's it for me. All that to say, all that to say, when I hear the word perfection, the perfection of God, I think about painting the living room with Aaron. The thought of perfection gives me terrible anxiety because it's this insanely high bar, right, that like none of us can touch. Perfection is unattainable. It's what makes God so much bigger, so terrifying, so inaccessible to us. We tend to think about perfection in the most nitpicky of terms, right? Without spot or blemish, immaculate, flawless, that's how we, that's how I envision perfection. But I've got news for you guys, and it is good news. That is not the way the Bible talks about perfection. How many of us know this line? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of us have heard this before? Yeah, it's, it's from the Gospel of Matthew. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, which you all should be experts on now, right? You were in the Sermon on the Mount all summer. I remember the first time I heard this line as like a teenager, my heart sank. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is soul-crushing. Because there is no way I can do it. There's no way I can be perfect. Again, going with our nitpicky understanding of perfection. But this is one example where the context really gives you some perspective. Matthew 5, starting in verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The chief example of God's perfection is the fact that the sun shines on the good and the evil. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. These are good things. These are gifts. These are blessings that God bestows on everyone. When the Bible says that God is perfect, it's saying that God is not in the withholding business. God doesn't blot out the sun over the houses of the bad guys, right? Like Vladimir Putin will get sunlight today because God is perfect. God is not some heavenly perfectionist watching our every move, holding us to this unattainable standard, ready to smite us if we mess up. 
You know, Luann's been doing really good lately. I'm going to give her a blessing. Um, but not Dick. Not Dick. He's been messing up too much. I, th- that, that thing you did, Dick, the other day, you thought no one was looking, I saw you smiting for you. That's not how God operates. God is not in the business of retaliation. That would be an imperfect view of God. When the Bible says God is perfect, it's saying that God doesn't discriminate. God doesn't vary in God's love. God doesn't withhold. God treats everyone the same. God is the same loving parent to you and to you and to you and to me and to every living being in the universe. That's what the Bible means by perfect. So when James writes, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no variation in God's love because God's love is perfect. Are we tracking with this? Is this, is this connecting? Are we understanding what the biblical authors, what James means by perfect? That's the standard we are being called to as God's children. That's God's will for us, that we would embody that perfect love of God. The problem is we're really bad at it, and that's because of sin. Verse 13. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and God tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when desire has conceived, it engenders sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Desire leads to temptation, which leads to sin, which leads to death. Reminds me of Yoda, right? Fear leads to suffering, right? That's a Star Wars reference. It's okay. Um, (laughs) We'll move on. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about the reality of sin. Second category um, to group this stuff in. Sin is something that we really don't talk about enough in progressive churches, Um, and I think that's largely a reaction to all the damage that's been done by other churches that like to talk about sin, right? Um, A few years ago, uh, this this was a ways back now, but someone came up to me after church one Sunday here, uh, to let me know that they don't like my preaching very much. Um, they, they were like, I like you, you're a good guy, I love this church, but I do not like your preaching. You gotta talk more about sin. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, Dan. You gotta preach on sin. So naturally, I was like, thank you for the advice, you know, noted. Um, out of curiosity, though, what sins are you struggling with that you'd like me to preach on? <laughs> Crickets, right? Um, it was not, they were not expecting that. And it became really clear over the course of this conversation that this person did not want to hear me preach on any of their sins. They wouldn't even acknowledge or share anything they were wrestling with. They had a lot of pet peeve sins of other people that they wanted to hear me preach on, and like half of them weren't even sins, you guys, like tattoos and such. And so finally, finally, after a lot of back and forth, I finally asked this person, I was like, help me understand. How is it going to benefit you to hear me preach on other people's sins? 
you want to hear me preach on sin, tell me what you're struggling with, and I'll preach on sin. They never came back to our church for some reason. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what happened there. But that is what so many Christians do, right? We have a handful of sins that we fixate on, usually sins of people we don't like. And we use that to exclude and to beat up. This is why so many churches like ours don't even touch the subject. We're afraid to talk about sin. But we have to, you guys. We have to talk about sin because sin is what's stopping us from embodying that perfect love of God. James tells us that the root of sin is desire. Uh, We might say greed or covetousness, wanting what other people have, right? Um, This is like half the Ten Commandments in a nutshell. Uh, Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse. Don't covet your neighbor's ox. I struggle with that one personally. Um, don't, don't steal. Don't covet to the point that you're taking from people. Uh, don't take a life. Don't commit adultery. It all boils down to this misplaced desire, greed, coveting, wanting what other people have. And this is hard for us as Americans because we live in a society <laughs> that puts a lot of time and energy into dividing what's mine from what's yours. And that leaves us with this scarcity mindset, this fear that my stuff is gonna run out. I'm not gonna have enough. And so we accumulate more and more and more and we hold on to what we've got, we don't share it. God forbid our neighbor down the street has more than us, we might just take a little bit of theirs to kinda knock them down a peg or two. That's sin. It affects every single one of us, and it is absolute poison if you want to embody the perfect love of God. It's the opposite of that. If you want evidence of sin, look at the inequality of our world. Economic inequality, uh, category three of what we're talking about today. Over the past century or so, As our society has gotten more and more prosperous, it has also gotten more unequal, with a larger percentage of wealth being held by a shrinking number, a shrinking percentage of the population. You want to talk about sin? You want to see how the world has gone to hell in a handbasket? We live in a country where if you have enough money, you can get away with anything. Anything. But if you're poor, well, then we criminalize your very existence. This is where I think the wisdom of James is the most radical, and this is where I believe it becomes the most pressing and where it rings the most true. Uh, Verse 9, let the brother or sister of humble means boast in having a high position, and the rich in having been humble. There's a reversal there because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. The word of God for the people of God, right? Yeah, we might, we might hesitate to say thanks be to God there. James is calling for a radical realignment of our values and priorities. And it's radical because most of us, if we're honest, have never really reckoned with this stuff. 
We don't read James. You know, we're, we're fine with the Bible. We're fine with Christianity as long as it doesn't come for our, our stuff. But as followers of Jesus, if we are going to embody the perfect love of God in a world full of sin, we need a radical realignment of our values. The first piece of that is to honor the poor. Let the brother or sister of humble means boast in having high position. We've got to honor the poor. Honoring the poor is a radically countercultural thing for the 21st century. We do not honor the poor in our country. That's not how we operate. We pity the poor, maybe. Um, We look down on them, blame them for our problems. We're really good at scapegoating the poor, especially if that poor person is an immigrant or a person of color. At best, we give charity to the poor, right? some sort of good or service that we dispense. And charity is great. Don't get me wrong. Charity does a lot of good. But there's an imbalance of power there. You've got the person dispensing the charity, and you've got the person receiving the charity. That is not an equal relationship. That is not balancing out or reversing that power dynamic. It's not honoring the poor. I'll tell you, this is something I wrestle with personally. Uh, This is something I wrestle with and think about a lot as the pastor of our church. Um, We do some incredible charity here. We do amazing work. We've made such a huge impact on our community. I mean, my gosh, our outreach team, stuff like uh, the gathering table, teen closet. I have seen the impact that makes. I've been here. I've seen the gratitude, the faces of people who come here and get a free meal. But I also had to challenge myself. A question that's kept me up at night is why aren't more of these folks part of our church, part of our congregation? Why aren't they connecting here? Why is it that so many people who come through these doors regularly for a meal haven't gotten connected to our congregation? And I'm sure there's a lot of answers. Uh, Some probably have their own churches they're connected to. That's fantastic. Some have no doubt been hurt by a church, which I also get. But as a pastor of this church, I've had to ask myself, am I doing enough to truly honor them? Is there more that I could do? Is there more that we could do to honor the poor in our midst? Do people with economic needs feel honored when they step inside this building, when they interact with us? If not, what do we need to do differently? How can we lift up the poor and truly honor them? What does it look like to prioritize those with economic needs? To think about them and how we live, how we budget, how we operate as a church. How do we do this in our lives? How does it challenge uh, the way we spend our time, the people we associate with? the way we plan and budget for ourselves, the way we vote, the way we advocate, the people we stand with. We have to honor the poor. That's the first half of this radical realignment James is calling for. The second has to do with wealth. Verse 9 again. 
Let the brother or sister of humble means boast in having a high position, and the rich in having been humbled, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. For our own good, we have to recognize that wealth passes away. It doesn't last. That's the second half of this realignment, and it is also radically countercultural. Our society tells us that wealth is everything. You want security, you want a bright future, you want to be taken care of, you want health and prosperity, you got to get wealth. You got to accumulate wealth. You'd better get a good job with good pay, sock away as much money as you can, build a nest egg, invest, rainy day fund. None of that is bad in and of itself. It is wise to save money and to plan for the future. I don't want to poo-poo that. But if you think that wealth is going to guarantee you happiness and security, you've got another thing coming entirely. Um, back in college, I worked with a guy named Frank, Frank Vohansky. Um, he was a good guy, Polish immigrant. We worked together in this uh, hydraulics machine shop for a couple years. He was really smart, a uh, hard worker. Um, this dude planned and budgeted and saved and worked his butt off. He achieved the American dream. Um, and after, after immigrating to the U.S., working for decades, he retired early. I think he was like 60 or 62 when we threw his retirement party. We were all so excited for him. How many blue-collar workers retire at 62, right? And I remember at his retirement party thinking, this guy did it. Frank made it. I want to be in his shoes someday. And then about six months after he retired, Frank died of a heart attack in his sleep. Totally out of the blue. And that shook me up. That changed my perspective on some things. The only guarantee the Bible gives us about wealth is that it won't last. It will pass away. It will run out in your lifetime if you're lucky. And if not... Well, we're all leaving this world the exact same way we came into it, with nothing. Don't wear yourself out pursuing wealth. Don't put your hope in wealth. Don't put your trust in wealth. Don't busy yourself with the accumulation of more and more. Don't let wealth stress you out and dominate your life, or you will wither away like a flower in the field. These two shifts are connected, I think. How we honor the poor and recognizing that wealth passes away. These core bits of wisdom from James are the start of something. And if we let it percolate, if we center ourselves on it, we're going to come back to it a few more times in this book. It will totally revolutionize the way we live and move in this world. This shift does not make life easier. 
In fact, it will probably make it less secure in the eyes of the world. But if we grapple with this, if we come to terms with this, if we internalize it and start to live differently as a result, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier to embody that perfect love of God. I want to direct you guys again to the going deeper section of your bulletin. And if anyone didn't grab a bulletin on your way in, that's okay. There's always a stack of them um, on the Connection Center, so you can grab one on your way out. But for the going uh, deeper this week, we've got a whole list of questions here to ponder and to pray about in response to these verses. Take this with you this week. Uh, Spend some time in the book of James. Start now in the moment of reflection that we're about to have after the sermon. Let these questions guide you and challenge you and provoke you. Let the words of James shake you up as you think about what this might look like in your life. Let's pray. Loving God, help us to receive this wisdom about sin and wealth and what it looks like to follow you. Open our eyes to the ways that we fail to honor the poor, what we need to do differently. Open our hearts to discern and to recognize the myths about wealth and prosperity that the world has turned us and that we've, that we've bought into. And God, show us a different path, one that will help us receive and embody your perfect love. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.